Welcome to Pragmatic Live, the podcast for product people. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor and frequent host of this podcast. And today we are joined by an amazing guest, Teresa Torres. I first heard Teresa at the Portland Product Camp, where she delivered a talk called The Top Five Mistakes Product Teams Make with Customer Interviews. It was fabulous. And I don't say that lightly. I had several ahas during her talk and said to myself several times, we have to get her on Pragmatic Live. And we're delighted she agreed to come on and share some of her insights with you. Welcome, Teresa. Thanks, Mark. I'm excited to be here. Should be fun. So you have a ton of tips on interviewing your market. Can you just rattle off what you would think of as your top two or three? And we don't have to go into details yet. We'll probably dive into them. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first one is uh, to collect stories and not facts. And there's a lot to unpack there, which I'm sure we will. But I think the key is just to act in an interview like you're talking to a friend at a bar and hear about their day, hear about their life. Uh, and then the second one, I think, is to be really deliberate about how you're capturing what you're learning in an interview. We tend to rely on our memory. Our memory is not very reliable. So just having a good method for capturing and not just pages and pages of notes, but how are you synthesizing what you're learning interview by interview? You want to throw in a third one or we just do those two for now? Uh, yeah, I can throw in a third one. Go ahead. Uh, so I think the, uh, a third mistake teams make when interviewing is uh, they tend to focus, they interview the wrong people. So we tend to interview whoever is, it's easy to interview or we over index on, we need a representative sample. And I think that's the quant folks tend to tend to want to geek out on, are we interviewing exactly the right people? Are we interviewing enough people? And I think uh, a better way to think about it is sort of the design thinking school of camp, which is to interview extreme users. Uh, so looking for variation in who you're interviewing rather than interviewing the exact perfect representative sample. Hey, that sounds like a perfect outline for our, for our talk today. Let's start with stories. I, I got to say, this was the most insightful thing I saw you do. It was just incredible. Um, and why don't you go ahead and unpack that one for us just a little bit? Yeah, so most people, when they're interviewing, they start with a two or three page discussion guide. And the questions all start with what or when or why or how, right? They're all very speculative. Like, they're questions that lead someone to speculate. So if I ask you when you do something, you probably have a general idea of when you do it, but I don't know that your general idea reflects when you actually do it. Um, or if we ask people what questions, um, it's the same idea. Like our brain is exceptionally good at coming up with answers to questions, but those answers aren't necessarily reliable. In fact, there's a, there's a really cool study that was done by a guy that worked with sp split brain patients. So the key with the split brain patient is that their right hemisphere is not connected to their left hemisphere. And they set up the experiment in such a way that the right, the right hemisphere could, had an experience. The left hemisphere didn't have, have an answer that didn't, did not experience itself. Then they asked the person a question. So the left brain is our verbal generator. And the person answered the question, even there was no way for the left brain to know what the answer was. Uh, but we still came up with, the person still came up with an answer. Uh, and this study has been duplicated with other people, even people that don't have split brain, split brains. Um, and so it's just something to remember is that uh, our answers aren't very reliable. And the way around that is to really ground the conversation in specific stories about the past. 
So don't talk in generalities. Talk about specifics. Yeah, I, I, I read that story in one of your blogs. It was fascinating. And, and what I found so interesting about that was that even though my left brain had no idea what was going on, I gave you an answer and I believed it was true and it was a legitimate, reasonable answer. And, and it was just fascinating. And, and they didn't even know they made it up. Yeah, the answer. So this study is um, by Michael Gazaniga, I think is the last name. Um, and it's, uh, it's pretty landmark research where he introduces this idea of the left brain interpreter, where it's just what our left brain does. It's constantly interpreting what's happening in our world. And so we tend to answer questions um, based on how our left brain is interpreting what we're doing. Uh, but it turns out like a lot of things, like a lot of cognitive biases, it works really fast. It's not always accurate. And especially when we're talking about our memory about our own behavior, we run into a lot of areas where we're just not going to collect reliable information. I think the study that you did with the genes, or study, it's not right, but in the, in the product camp presentation in the ladies buying jeans was absolutely yeah. uh, phenomenal. Yeah, so let me walk you through sort of what I'm doing there. I've used this in dozens of workshops, dozens of talks, and I've never had it fail. So people don't believe me. Like we don't wanna believe that our left brain interpreter is making up answers. So I always illustrate this with the audience and I ask a woman in the audience to tell me what she cares about when she's looking for a pair of jeans. And I will actually answer this from my past experience. If you had asked me what I looked for in a pair of jeans, I would have said things like um, price. I don't want to pay more than $100 for a pair of jeans. Uh, comfort. And maybe last I would have cared about, like, how fashionable are they? Okay. Um, wait, wait, and wait, then, and then, wait, wait. Audience time. Yeah, yeah. Everybody pause. Think about why you buy a pair of jeans. What are you looking for? And now you can finish the story. Yeah. So... So my criteria was um, uh, under $100 comfort and uh, maybe fashionable, but far third. And then my sister convinced me to go to Lucky Brand Jeans with to a Lucky Brand store with her. She's been raving about these jeans forever. She said, look, just try them on. And I was opposed to it. Lucky Jeans can be upwards close to $200. Um, and I tried them on and I've never looked back. I've worn Lucky Jeans ever since. And the funny thing about this is this is not just unique to me. So at Product Camp, where you heard me speak, there was a woman in the audience who explained that fit, um, brand loyalty, and I forget what her third criteria was. Um, and then I asked her to tell me about the last time she bought a pair of jeans, and she explained that she bought them online through Amazon. And I don't care how many times you buy the same brand, jeans change year to year. There's no way fit is your number one criteria if you're buying them on Amazon. And what's interesting is buying them online tells me a very big criteria for her is convenience. And that never came out in her, in her list. She never once said convenience is a factor. Uh, but clearly when we buy online, convenience is the number one factor. And, and so your recommendation to people is tell me about the last time you purchased this. Yeah, not always the last time. So, And it kind of depends on what you're trying to learn. But I think the key is tell me about a time when. And then you can tailor that ask based on what you're trying to learn. So tell me about the last time you purchased something like this. Uh, tell me about the last time. Tell me about what you did last week. Tell me what yesterday looked like. What we're doing there is we're helping the participant get grounded in their real life. So instead of them 
staying up in this general land where the left brain interpreter is going to start to speculate about behavior, we're asking them to tell specifics about what they actually did. And if we help them get grounded in a specific instance, we're much better at providing reliable information. I, I just find that fascinating. That was, that was a fantastic, fantastic example. Yeah, thanks. You know, a lot of this, this idea of focusing on stories is grounded in how academics do qualitative research. And first of all, there's dozens of fields where we're constantly looking at how do we get better about learning about the human experience. Uh, but so little of it has made its way into how industry does research. Uh, so one of the things I try to focus on is bridging that gap. Hmm. Okay. So, so the second one we had on our list was capturing the information properly. I'm, I'm assuming that's note-taking or recording. Yeah, yeah, it's a couple of things. Uh, so I know some people like to furiously take notes and they're writing down everything they hear verbatim. Uh, it's really hard to do that if you're actually going to listen to the participant. So we underestimate how much cognitive work is involved in active listening. Um, so I, I do recommend that people record their interviews uh, because it takes the burden off of having to write down all your notes. I like to use note taking as a way to um, help reinforce my active listening. So one thing that people do that's a common mistake is they interrupt a lot and they'll interrupt the participant because they're afraid they're going to forget what their clarifying question is. Uh, I would write that clarifying question down and come back to it after the participant has paused. Um, so my note taking during an interview is really to help me stay in the moment and keep listening. Um, but really the bigger piece here on this mistake is um, I think in an industry, we tend to synthesize our interviews by getting in a room and doing a, like an affinity mapping exercise where everybody who heard the interviews writes down kind of the key points they took away. And then we cluster and look for themes. The problem with that exercise is that there's nothing wrong with clustering and looking for themes, but by just writing down uh, what we remember, it's we tend to remember what was most salient to us, not necessarily what was most important. And what's most salient to us is based on our own experiences. It's 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 we're falling like we're going to be biased based on our own past knowledge and our own past experience. Whereas if instead we're specifically listening for for if we're listening for specific things from the participant and capturing that as we go, and especially right after the interview, it helps to break some of those kind of biases that come into play. So I'm not sure I followed all that, but let me toss out a couple of points and then I want to ask the following question here. First off, it was really kind of funny because I had written down the word recording, meaning I'm about to ask you about recording. And then you went on to describe you just write down the things that you want to ask about. I thought that was really good. <laughs> so recording, do you ever get pushback from people not wanting to be open because you're recording the interview? Yes, this is a really important question. I don't, the number one rule in an interview is do what makes your participant comfortable. So if somebody expresses a concern with being recorded, don't record them. I think it's that simple. Um, when I do record, I use a little teeny tiny thumb drive that is a recorder. I, Always tell them that I'm recording. That is, I think, an ethical requirement. Um, and then usually what happens is about two minutes into the interview, they even for, they forget it's there. Uh, I do always explain I record simply for my own note-taking. I think it's really important if you're recording interviews, 
that you have a secure way to store that data and that you handle it properly so that you're not uh, taking sensitive data and, and treating it sort of loosey-goosey. Um, and I don't, I don't think rec recording is required, but I know a lot of people who struggle to not take verbatim notes unless they are recording. Yeah, note-taking is really challenging, there's no doubt. The, the other thing you mentioned that I thought was fascinating is we remember the things that are salient to us. And I often recommend when I'm teaching people how to do this to make sure you take someone who's not in the same role as you because you're mm -hmm. going to hear two different things when you walk out and sit down to start talking about it. That's that's absolutely right. So I want I want an engineer, a designer, and a product manager interviewing together. They're each going to hear different things. It's really hard for a product manager to understand how much they discount in an interview because they think the problem or the need that the customer is raising is not solvable. And just having an engineer in the room helps so much with kind of overcoming that hurdle. But it's not even about role. It's about, um, Mark, maybe you and I are interviewing somebody about a prototype and I really like the solution and you really don't like the solution. I'm going to hear, because of confirmation bias, I'm going to hear all of the things that the person says that agrees with the design. And you're going to hear all of the things that the person says that disagrees with the design. That is, that is just so true. Absolutely. Now, the part of your previous explanation, I didn't understand. We got to the very end and you said we do, we sit down and we brainstorm to get rid of the bias or we do it immediately after. Can you, can you help me understand what you were really saying there? Yeah. So let me try again. So, in a typical affinity mapping exercise, what I see teams do, and affinity mapping is where a team sits around a table and they write down on stickies quotes or key things or insights they remember from the interview. They put them all on the wall and they're trying to group um, and cluster to find themes. All, all, that whole process is great except for the very first part where each person is trying to think about um, what was the most important things that they heard. That's where bias is going to come into, the, into play. So... Yeah. We do want everybody to capture what they think was most important and what was most interesting, but we want to put a little more structure there. So what I have teams do is I have them listen for what are uh, pain points, what are needs. Um, if they hear a feature but they, that they're hearing from the participant, uh, they draw as they're interviewing the person, I want them mapping out what did they hear. So for example, if I ask you to tell me about yesterday, I might draw a customer journey map that represents your yesterday. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of tools you can use to help capture more of what you hear. Whereas if you just rely on your memory, um, something might stand out in the interview that's really salient to you because you're a basketball fan and something they said triggered a basketball memory. That doesn't mean it was important or even interesting to the participant. It was just interesting to you. And so your past knowledge and your past experience is going to is going to cause some things in the interview to light up just because of who you are. Um, but that's not really necessarily the most important thing that's coming out of that interview. Yes. OK. And so if we can focus on specific issues or we're trying to find all the different needs or we like to say problems. So we try to mm -hmm. find all the mm -hmm. different problems that we heard and then we can start to prioritize them and say what's important or what's not important. Yeah, so I think there's a couple pieces here. One is definitely listen for, pro in, in this case, problems. Uh, I like to use the language opportunity just because it includes, um, I want teams listening for where is this user having success? 
Because if I can replicate your success, I can make other people successful. Um, so that's the opportunity language includes both the what problems can I solve and what success can I replicate. Uh, so that's a big one. And then um, I, I want interviewers to actively turn feature requests into needs or into opportunities. So make note of the solution, the feature request, but also do the work to understand why. And then uh, really understand, like trying to map out process or experience helps capture more. I, I really think humans are visual synthesizers. Like we think visually. Um, not all of us have really gotten to untap that um, sort of ability because we stopped drawing at a really young age. Um, but I, we can relearn it really quickly. And so I think the more that you can visually synthesize what you're hearing in an interview, uh, the more value you're going to get out of the interview. Yeah, I, I certainly know, at least for me, I remember better when I could see something that visually represents what I'm trying to hear and remember. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Hey, uh, number three, we talk to the wrong people. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this one, I, I see two different things happen. Uh, they're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. So the first thing that happens, um, teams really struggle to find anybody to talk to. And so they go to Starbucks and they buy someone a cup of coffee, a stranger a cup of coffee, when they're selling an enterprise product. Right? So the first piece is we have to be, um, there has to be a layer of judgment. So now to be fair, it depends on which Starbucks you're going to. That's Perfectly. If you're hanging out in the San Francisco Bay Area and sell to any tech companies, by all means, recruit at Starbucks. Although really, you should be recruiting at Blue Bottle or one of the fancy coffee companies uh, if you were trying to find tech people. Uh, okay, so that's one thing. Like you need to, there needs to be a layer of, of reasonable judgment there. You need to be interviewing people um, that are your customers or have the ability to become your customers. And more importantly, uh, they need to have the need or problem that you're trying to explore. So you need to be careful about, uh, if we're trying to learn about how people buy jeans, don't interview somebody who doesn't own a pair of jeans. And try to convince them they should buy a pair of jeans. That's not going to be a valuable interview. That's a sales call. Um, the other end of the spectrum is sort of your, our quant folks, often software engineers, definitely data analysts that are turning, trying to turn qualitative research into quantitative research. So these are the folks that say things like, you only interviewed four people, what am I supposed to do with this data? Or uh, how do I know this customer isn't an outlier? So a really important distinction here is when we're talking about interviews and qualitative research, we're not trying to predict behavior. So with quantitative research, we're trying to predict, is this sample like the total population? And in order to answer that question effectively, that sample better represent the whole population. With qualitative research, we're not even approaching that level of sophistication. We're not trying to predict anything. What we're trying to uncover is how much variation in behavior is there in our user base. So we don't want to interview five customers that are the same size in the same geographic location that use our product in the exact same way. We're not going to get a lot of variation in behavior. Uh, instead, we want to look at maybe a small company, a big company, a West Coast company, an East Coast company, somebody who's um, over the moon happy with us, somebody who's disgruntled with us. And we're just looking for um, for the thing that we're trying to learn about across these different types of users, how much variation is there in their behavior? 
Okay. I, I often teach people when they're doing these visits that the goal is to be surprised. And so that way they go in with this open attitude that says, I have to go learn something I didn't know before I walked in here. Yeah, I love that. So I tell teams that if they're not surprised in every single interview that they do, uh, they are falling prey to confirmation bias. So they're only hearing what they want to hear. Partly that could be because they're asking leading questions. It could be because they need to work on their active listening skills. Uh, and Or it could be because of confirmation bias. So I think that's a great thing to teach is that our interviews, every single one of them, something should be surprising us. Yeah, and I like the way you explain the difference between qualitative and quantitative research. Um, absolutely, that, th those are spot on correct. Um, but one, one of the things I was reading is you were talking about in one of, one of your blogs, if you're doing backpacks, don't just interview students and workers, also interview kids or watch kids. And I was a little, I was struggling a little bit with that. And, and uh, oh, I think, I think this is the IDO example of if you're designing um, carry on luggage, uh, don't, don't just interview business travelers, but also talk to older folks that may have a hard time putting the luggage in the overhead bin, little kids who like are excited about taking their own luggage. That's ringing a bell. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the right, that's, that's what I read. I just didn't remember it well. Okay. Tell me what you struggled with. So, so what would I learn from a little kid? How, how, how does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So I, there's actually a great, I think this is also an idea story um, of, uh, well, maybe it's not the best story for this. Let me think about this for a second. Uh, okay. So with extreme users, uh, we tend to learn, extreme users tend to have um, like accentuated behaviors that we all have. So for example, uh, an older, an older person trying to put uh, uh, overhead like luggage into the overhead bin is going to struggle because they don't have a lot of strength, right? Maybe they don't have a lot of mobility. Well, it turns out a lot of us have problems with putting luggage in the overhead bin. Maybe I have a cup of coffee in my hands. Maybe the person in front of me, maybe I'm standing too close to the person in front of me and I just don't have the room to do it. So by studying these extreme users, these behaviors that we all exhibit get blown up. It's like taking a magnifying glass. Um, so with kids, it may be the opposite direction. Uh, they can't reach the overhead bin, right? So what, what are we doing to help them? And it's not, let's, it's not just about the overhead bin, right? It's um, with a little kid, maybe it's the luggage is unwieldy because it's literally two thirds the size of my body. Okay, well, we have adults who have oversized luggage that's two thirds the size of their body. Maybe we can learn from a kid how to help that adult. Uh, so I think it's, it's less about I'm not designing thing, something for a kid. What do I have to learn from a kid? It's more about um, an extreme user amplifies what might a pattern that might exist across your whole population. Okay. Can I chastise myself for just a moment or two? Sure. Sure. <laughs> so when I was reading that article, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so what problems do kids have that if we solved it, it would help me as a business traveler and, and, all of a sudden, if you think about it, what I just jumped to was solving the problem and assuming there was a quantitative piece to this. And what we're trying to do is be surprised and learn what the possibilities are so later we can go out and do the quantitative piece. Yep, yep. Uh, okay, my bad. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. This stuff is hard, right? I, I mean, I have dozens of examples in my own life where I look back and I go, Teresa, you teach this all day, every day. How did you not do this? Oh, I, I find myself doing right, that right? way too often. Yeah, it turns out we're all human beings. Um, so another thing that you talked about when, in the product camp, what I just wanted you to touch on briefly, you said the words research in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that fascinating. What, uh, go ahead and tell the audience what that was. Yeah. So I work with a lot of teams that have never interacted with their customers. Uh, it's sad to me that that's still the case, but it is, I think I would say the majority of product teams are still not engaging with their customers nearly enough. And uh, one of the hurdles is recruiting is hard. We tend to think about an interview as lasting an hour. We have to compensate them. Maybe we don't have a budget to do that. Whereas actually for a lot of us, we actually could minimize this idea of an interview and do research in the wild. So what do I mean by that? I worked with one consumer company that was helping part-time like hourly workers find their next job. So I, they were struggling to recruit. Hourly workers tend to not have a lot of free time. A lot of them are working multiple jobs. Uh, so I said, how many times a day in your, in your life do you interact with the hourly worker? And of course, these are all knowledge workers, right? Product managers, designers, software engineers. And their answer was never, what are you talking about? I said, what about when you buy your gas, when you buy your coffee, when you go to the grocery store, uh, when you're at a restaurant? And we realized that they probably interact with hourly workers 20 to 30 times a week. So I said, what if you spent five minutes using your small talk to learn a little bit about what you're trying to learn. Uh, and so they started to experiment with this. Um, they started asking people if they liked their jobs just as part of small talk. And then they used that to learn how they heard about the job and how they got the job. And the participant really never had to know that this was a formal thing, right? Now, I would say ethically that if you start to get into a meaty conversation with someone, you now need to identify yourself as someone who works at a company uh, that's researching this. Uh, but there's a lot we can learn in a series of five-minute conversations. I worked with another team that was targeting Uber and Lyft drivers, and they would do their research while along for a ride. So they would, a lot of the team was using Uber and Lyft in their own life. And whenever they were in a car, they would um, just ask questions. And I find myself, because I worked with that team, I find myself doing this whenever I take a Lyft, uh, just as, as part of my small talk. Like, I don't need to do the research. I don't even work with that team anymore. Uh, but it's just an awesome small talk conversation. Um, and so for enterprise teams, I always get pushback. How do we do this? Well, I think you can still do it. You have sales teams that are interacting with customers every day. You have account management teams. You have customer success teams or customer support teams. I like to piggyback on their meetings. If they're talking to customers every day, can I ask for five minutes to do my five-minute interview? So that's research in the wild is going to where people are and, and making the interview small enough that it's easy for them to say yes. It just seems so, so simple. Do you get pushback from your clients on that? Do they, are they comfortable doing it or not comfortable doing it? Uh, I get a lot of pushback. Hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, we're, you know, we tend to turn research into this really formal activity. So at first they don't believe me that they're going to learn anything from small talk. Uh, and some teams, they, they even like procrastinate for weeks. And I go, okay, look, we're going to do one together. Um, but once they do one, like literally that's all it takes is they just, if they can just gut their way through the first one, the light bulb goes off. It really does work. 
Uh, and teams go from like struggling to do the first one to the next week coming back with five to 10 stories. Yeah. So, so it kind of reminds me, I was taking a class once and the instructor had said at, at dinner tonight, ask your waiter, what's the funniest thing that's ever happened to him? Yeah. yeah. And, and what you find is that you build this amazing rapport with your waiter. And from that point on, I, you know, I get into Uber or Lyft and I always ask that question because I find the answers fascinating. Yep, I do the same. <laughs> but, uh, but it gets so easy once you realize that people love to talk about their job or what's going on. As long as it's, you know, you're not being judgmental about it at all. You're just curious. Yeah, this is the one-two punch of ask them about themselves and then listen. And that's, you know, I think there's a dozen books on how to build rapport. And they're all based on the same foundation. Ask them about them, themselves and then listen. Because we all just want to be heard. Um, and so that's, I think, uh, this idea of research in the wild is a lot easier than most people think it is. And once you get a little tiny bit of practice, it becomes second nature. Yeah, it's just that listening part, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard work. It's hard work. <laughs> I, 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 as a consultant, when I'm assessing a company, so a lot of consultants will go into a company and spend a couple days interviewing people and observing how people work. I take advantage of research in the wild. I take advantage of every single hallway conversation I have with anybody, no matter how small it is. I'm listening for what I'm trying to uncover about the organization. And it's shocking how much evidence we get uh, in just a couple of minutes that I think every team should be taking advantage of this idea of research in the wild. Yeah. It's actually not hard. People want to talk about themselves. So yeah. Yeah. Teresa, thank you so much for your time today. If anyone wants to contact you, how can they do that? Yeah. So I have a couple uh, resources for people. So first of all, as you've recently uh, discovered, I have written a ton about interviewing on my blog at producttalk.org. Um, I also offer a course on interviewing. The course is designed to get you hands-on practice. Interviewing is a skill that needs to be practiced. We cover a lot of things we talked about, how to collect stories reliably, how to synthesize what you're learning. You get to practice active listening. Uh, and then finally, if you want to just email me and you want to share some thoughts about this interview or ask questions, uh, my email is Teresa at producttalk.org. And there's no H in Teresa. So that's T-E-R-E-S-A at producttalk.org. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that just half as much as I did. What did you think? And let us know by sending an email to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. Most importantly, don't forget to join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live.